Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. I have got Royfield Brown with me today. Royfield, you and I met on a chat when we were talking with Monica Osborne. We had a lot of discussion around kind of like where at least we are in the U.S. now around like kind of the culture wars, if you will. And so we've been in touch since then on and off. And we're finally actually sitting down to have this conversation. I know you know, you have got your background in the U.K. And I really want to hear a little bit more about what we're seeing in the U.S. and what we're seeing in the U.K. First, I know, you know, with Hold My Drink podcast, I usually come with a drink. I don't know if you brought one. I have something you know what? weird. Go ahead. What? Uh, uh, how weird is weird? Okay. It's an orange beer. Huh. Well, I'm in, I'm in California. It's a mm. little bit early to be drinking beer right now. It's not even midday. I think midday is when you can start drinking beer. And you're in Austin, so it's, it's... apropos that you can... Yes. Right now. Um, yes. I, I, I've come without anything. Is it obligatory? Do I need to run to the fridge and no. get something? No, nope. no, nope. you can come with your, <laughs> you can come with your cup of knowledge. Okay, I like that. Well, there I tell we you what, go. considering I'm English, I'm drinking a metaphorical cup of tea. How's that? Okay, okay, that's good enough. Speaking <laughs> now, you were. I know you are. You're in California now. You're mm -hmm. back and forth from the UK. You are a global citizen. And when we were talking before, and it was a group chat with Monica Osborne, she was sharing some of the stresses that she has found in her kids' school in California mm -hmm. around issues of the diversity training and you know what some of us will call critical race theory. I think that's used too often. What are you seeing in California, and how is it different than what some of the kind of cultural divisions maybe in the UK. Um, right now, I can't speak specifically to the Californian education system. I can't. I don't have kids here that go to schools in California. Uh, but there's no two ways about it. Um, as somebody who will call myself politically left of centre, um, ethically, politically, this is a progressive bit of the planet, let alone uh, the United States. It is, you know. And, you know, if you're in somewhere like Oakland, you know, the black radical history of Oakland with the Black Panthers is celebrated here. Even if it's just performative, it is celebrated here. And ditto when you go to, like, I mean, you go to SFO Airport, there's a massive Harvey Milk mural. You know, he's the first openly gay politician elected anywhere within the United States, you know, happened in San Francisco in the mid-1970s. So this is um, a very progressive uh, bit of the uh, United States. Um, in the UK, right, things are a little bit more relaxed. However, we are suffering from the culture wars fight. It's not to the same degree uh, as it is in the United States. But with, with Brexit, that there was a full-on mm -hmm. existential fight mm -hmm. and British politi politics got upended in a way that no one can remember in, in their lifetime. Uh, for that, when that vote came in in, what, June 23rd, uh, 2016, till when we actually exited, British politics was like something I've never known before. And we have just about enough politicians who are warning us against going down an American route. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong. There are some politicians who, if somebody on the left says something, somebody on the right automatically says something, they're just like, there is no nuance. They just, they just go for it. But interestingly, um, the 
after the murder of George Floyd, which had um, ramifications all over the world, but the, the symbolism uh, went all around the world. Uh, we had, um, there was a statue of a guy called George Coulson, who uh, was a, a slave, uh, he was a, a trader slaver who donated lots of his money to the city of Bristol. And I think about a week after the murder of George Floyd, that statue was yanked down and thrown into the River Avon in, in Bristol. And then the English football team um, started taking a knee. And all professional football matches within the United Kingdom all start with all the players taking an knee now and has done for the last two years. But the English football team did it. There was... When the English football team started to do that, there was booing. And the commentators always said, this is not everyone who is booing, but there is about, let's say, 10%, 15% mm -hmm. of the fans then started booing. England got to the final of the European Championships uh, against Italy. And this is a big deal. England haven't got to a final of a football tournament since 1966. It's a big deal. And the way that some of those Italian fans were treated was an utter disgrace. And I'm incredibly embarrassed. Bearing in mind that England, specifically London, has a large or a significant Italian minority as well. You know, London is a ridiculously cosmopolitan place. Right. Um, it, it's, it's, like, it's like going to New York. Like every community has um, its stamp on, on that city somewhere. And that allowed some politicians, bearing in mind that somebody like Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, also said, taking the knee, oh, it's really performative and you don't have to do it and blah, 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 blah. blah. When the shameful behaviour towards those Italian fans in that final came, uh, happened, some right-wing politicians said, maybe there is a reason to take the knee, to, to, show, to show respect for diversity. And we need to be careful that we don't go down an American route with, with, with culture wars here. That was a really pa powerful symbolic moment that potentially Britain could get to a point whereby our politics could get completely derailed, where people don't listen to each other and don't listen to the nuance. That's the thing. They just come, come at it and they go, well, I'm on this side, you're on the other side, boo to you straight away. And we've rode back a little since then. Players still take the knee. It's not booed. It's in, it's in total silence now. And then it, get, then it gets applauded because it's not just about Black Lives Matters. It's about respect and diversity and respecting when you see the English football team, they're black, they're white, they're brown. Some of their parents from this country and that country, but they all represent England. And I think that, that that's a powerful thing. So hopefully my answer wasn't too long-winded and boring and I haven't directly answered because I don't know about California. But what I would say is this, is that um, when people hear critical race theory, they fundamentally hear two things. That some people hear, you're saying that white people are bad. And then some people hear, this is um, another way of looking at our history that embraces different viewpoints. And as somebody who is, I never call myself a historian, though somebody did call me a historian the other day and then went, did a dictionary definition and said, you are a historian, my friend. Um, if I say to you, when did the Second World War start? What, what would your answer be? Second World War, 19... 40, oh gosh, I don't want to look silly, but 1941? December 7th. Yeah? 1941, December 7th. You're an December American. 7th. So that's legitimate answer. If I'm a Russian, I'm going to say June 1941. If I'm a Pole, I'm going to say September 1939. If I'm Chinese, I'm going to go 1938. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think as somebody who has an understanding of little bits of history, 
I can appreciate that the founding story that, um, let's say, the majority culture, white folks, um, told themselves about the founding of America is a legitimate view. It's a view. But if you are a First Nations person, you're going to have a different view, and understandably so. I remember listening to a speech by Condoleezza Rice, and it had a real profound effect on me. Um, it's about 2006. And she said, um, while she was speaking, she says, one of the, she said, African Americans are one of the foundational peoples of America. And I'd never actually thought about it in that way, right? Not mm -hmm. that they've just been subjugated and thrown into bondage, but even that bondage built this country and they mm -hmm. are foundational. Mm -hmm. And then when she said it, it was it's incredibly obvious, but it had a profound effect on me. So if you're going to tell the history of the United States with, let's say, all or at least some other its constituent foundational peoples, other than the white folks, you're going to have a different view of that history. That's not to say that America is bad, but as, a, as somebody who studies history, you can appreciate that we can come at history and look at the same event in different ways. Now, I'm no critical race theory uh, um, um, expert, but I appreciate that we can look at the United States from more than one perspective. And all of them are actually valid. For me, that's what I think critical race theory is. It's not to say, anybody wants to say that it says that um, little white boys and girls come home at the age six saying that I'm bad and I'm a racist, that's very obviously wrong. But, but we should be able to look at the history of all of our countries in 360 degrees and not just have a hero narrative that whatever our country's done has been for the good and has been heroic and has been for the benefit of the world, we should also be able to, to say, you know what? We did some stuff in the past which was bad, or at least which was questionable, or which was grey. And, and that, for me, is what critical race theory is. Um, does that mean that Thomas Jefferson is not a hero? I'm not saying that at all, you know. Um, he... You know, he uh, put a lot of his thoughts and philosophies into the edifice, which is the United States, right? Um, but he did have, he did hold a lot of slaves, and he did, um, you know, have children with Sally Hemings. But doesn't mean that he, he, you know, you, you, you trash his whole reputation, but you tell it in the round, 360 degrees. Here is somebody who, when he was younger, had, was actually anti-slavery as he as he matured went through life um he believed the institution needed to be upholded upheld sorry because he couldn't see how um mila here, here we go here's the cat mila please <laughs> she just wants to be she wants to be part of the show she's like she's back to oh, now she's walking around the laptop thomas jefferson saw that he believed, sorry, Thomas Jefferson, I'll say that again, Thomas Jefferson believed that the institution needed to be upheld to preserve the new union. Um, and then he did this at a time when he was exposing uh, the universal rights of man, fundamentally, you know, taking elements of what Thomas Paine said and uh, saying that there were inalienable rights, uh, but you know, some 20% of Americans were held in, held in bondage. We should be able to say, here is somebody who was a philosopher, but they were flawed. Yeah. And we don't need to just trash him as um, a dead white man. He's dead. He was white. We can say he said some good stuff. He was hypocritical. And also um, he was out of step, increasingly out of step for his time, the older he got. Mm. You know, we that to me is looking at things critically you want to call that race theory you know fine yeah i, I think we're all, well first of all a couple of things i love i'm going to i'm the 360 degrees i think that that is 
incredibly important. And I think that we're actually on the same page. For me, it's not so much about, I, I do believe that we need to be honest about our history. And, and in some ways we haven't. It's more the praxis, like you said, where there are some incidents of people just, you we, we've become even more segregated in a way. But for me, I think you're absolutely right. That the, looking at things 360 degrees, looking at it from different perspectives, your question on when World War II started, that was fascinating. Because you're absolutely right. For, for an American, that's when it started. And I, I love that you asked that. I mean, I think that's so important for showing the different perspectives and how we do teach. I wanted to... I, I want to kind of stay on this more meaty topic, but I wanted to go back to something that you talked about with the UK, because that was really interesting to me. I didn't hear about the football teams and the taking of a knee. And I wanted to ask you about that because you know, it means something very, very specific in the United States. What I heard you say was what it means, though, in the UK is really respect and diversity. What it means in the U.S. is really more a, a, a stance against police brutality. That's how most people interpret it. Do you see it differently? And then oh, let me add to that before you answer. The other thing, too, was because of that, it was seen as we're not going to give our allegiance, our pledge to the American flag because there have been parts of American history that, aren't good. Was it the same thing with the UK where it's like, we're not pledging to the, you know, the flag. No, no, no. It sounds the, like the, a completely, the, yeah, no, go no, ahead. No, I'm no. done. Um, here's the thing, it's very quickly. This pledge of allegiance thing mm -hmm. only happens in the United States. It doesn't happen in Spain or Britain or Norway, right? For us, the pledging of allegiance to the flag has actually quite fascistic overtones for Europeans. Europeans don't do stuff like that. Okay. 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 So as, as a, you know, you, you, you introed me saying I'm, I'm a global citizen. And when you travel throughout, let's say the liberal industrialized world, you don't see as many flags flying for that nation as you do in the United States. The United States is an anomaly in that regard. So if you can go past the police station in the, in the United Kingdom, it won't have a flag there. Like we all, and we'll say, we know what our flag looks like. We don't need to put it up. Right. We mm. It's like, you know, and I think the, just in the last five to 10 years, has the government said that in government council buildings above them, you should fly the British flag. Like we don't fly the flag. The Spanish don't fly the flag. The one maybe slight exception to this is France, because uh, the French flag does come, does come from a revolutionary past. So mm. now the French fly the flag a little bit. It's nowhere near the extent of the Americans. So Pledge of Allegiance, that's you lot. Like, nobody else does that, right? Um, other than totalitarian regimes. Mm. Right? You know, when you sit down and think about it, the countries that say you need to pledge allegiance to this banner are like North Korea. <laughs> like America ends up line, aligning itself with a very unsavory set of countries. So generally liberal in the classic sense of the word liberal, right, uh, right. democratic countries just go eh, right to that. Um, now, if I slight if I slightly misspoke, right, it's not that the taking of the knee is um, for diversity. It is anti-racist. Okay. Right. It's anti-racist. And I think it's powerfully symbolic in football in Europe because there's so many black players. Mm. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess now, but... I would say professional footballing ranks in England, it's going to be 25 to 30% of the players are black. And they would call themselves English. They're going to be Ghanaian. They're going to be French. They're going to be the whole smorgasbord of, of countries. 
but um, it's going to be 25 to 30 percent. So when you had an incident that for so many people of color was emblematic of how they felt that they are not treated the same at the point of uh, at the at the point of coming in contact with law officials, um, it was very it was highly symbolic for the English football team, which is multicultural, also to say we are against racism. Then it pans out. We are, we are pro diversity. We are pro inclusion. But fundamentally, it um, this wasn't to say that all police are bad. This wasn't to say that we want to burn the British flag. But this is to say that there are structural inequalities um, within the United Kingdom. I remember reading a story. Um, it's about five years ago, and I forget which football team these, and this is a tiny story, and I'm not equating it with what happened with, with, with George Floyd, but many young professional footballers who are of colour will say um, they're being treated in this way. So there's a really popular food chain in the United Kingdom called Nando's. It, it's uh, a, a Portu Portuguese-style chicken uh, shop. And it's gone into English colloquialism to have a cheeky Nando's, which means I'm going to have a quick meal at Nando's. It's one of those things which <laughs> I say to American, you know, do you want to have a cheeky Nando's? They go, what? Like, none of that makes any sense. It's, but it's so, such a British, such a British uh, statement. Nando's, super popular. You go there, you have your chicken base dish. Um, and basically, these footballers were asked to pay before they had the meal. Now, what the restaurateur saw was three young black men, teenagers, and thought they might run. They're going to eat their food and run. Not knowing they're professional footballers, they're actually millionaires and whatever, because they're just dressed ordinary or ordinarily. Now, that's just a tiny story, and that doesn't speak to police brutality, and it doesn't speak to uh, an extrajudicial murder, which was the murder of George Floyd. But it does speak to how young black men are viewed within society, that they're, they're a risk. And many young black British footballers uh, will tell you about numerous instances. Uh, they've got a nice car, they're, they're here, they're, and they just get stopped by, by the police. And as somebody who comes wrapped up in black skin, I was stopped by the police between the ages of 19 and I'm going to say the last time I was stopped was about 30. Um, let's say about 10 times and each time I was doing nothing and within I so I grew up in a town called Birmingham a city called Birmingham which is racially very diverse very diverse and I left that city when I was not 18 and I went to Worthing which is a town which is majority white 99.9% white. I was stopped three times by the police in the first six weeks. Mm. Never been stopped by the police in my whole life. I was stopped um, walking at home at one o'clock in the morning. I was stopped walk, uh, by the police at eight o'clock in the evening and then at 9 a.m. in the morning. So it wasn't even a case of, well, why are you suspiciously walking around at uh, one o'clock in the morning? Yeah. None of my white friends encountered anything like that. So for me, my interpretation of somebody who comes wrapped up in black skin is what that murder highlighted was how we are viewed, not by everybody, but by some very important agencies within our society. You know, 
the police in the UK don't routinely go around um, shooting people because they don't carry guns in the UK. Right. So when you're stopped by a police officer in the UK, you don't necessarily think if you come wrapped up in black skin, there's going to be a lethal outcome. You don't. There's a history of some people dying at the hands of the police in the UK, but it's nothing like what happens in, in the US. But that's not at all to say that there are structural inequalities. And for me, that's what the, the taking of the knee kind of symbolized that, you know what? <laughs> we get asked to pay when we go into restaurants, not all the time, but it does happen. Uh, we get stopped by the police much more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a recognition um, of that. And to see white players doing that and the manager of the English football team saying, we are going to keep doing this. And if people want to boo, they can boo was a very powerful statement. Mm. Yeah, it's it's remains an ongoing dialogue in the United States here. But but you know what? But I, I don't understand this, right? Because when many right wing patriots and I, I and I, and I'm saying patriots without doing the air quotes frequently disrespect American institutions, but that's fine, you know. So, you know, not ragging on Sarah Palin per se, but she used to be part of the, uh, the Alaskan Secession Party. You know, there's, there's lots of right-wing politics within the US who, lots of strands of right-wing politics, I should say, strands of, which are, you know, screw the federal government, um, screw the vestiges of the American state, right? I'm going to do my own thing. But that's not seen as being um, anti-American, right? And then you get somebody like, um, then you get, you know, an American uh, footballer, and I mean American football now, uh, <laughs> go, go take a knee six, six years ago, Right, and people start losing their hair. Right, and you know, the hair's on fire. And like, it's like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> le level of level of disrespect. And I'm like, hold on a minute. Right, this man's not saying Alaska should leave the union. This man isn't. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, there is there is a rank hypocrisy, and I think the hypocrisy comes about because of dare I say it, how that person looks, that the the the, the allegiance of somebody to America is questioned if they don't look like what a modal American is supposed to look like. You know, mm. I, I remember doing the election of 1960, where, so it's Nixon versus Kennedy. And Kennedy goes to West Virginia and somebody questions him being a Catholic and being the president and says, well, you know, are you going to take your orders from the American people or from the Pope? You know, and Kennedy says, nobody questioned my patriotism when they put me in fatigues and I, and I fought in the army. Mm. And, and black folks in America, I'm not aiming, I don't, I'm not speaking for them, but a lot of them have said to me a very similar thing. When the shit hits the fan, right, we're American soldiers. But very subtly and, very, and in very many quiet ways, we're questioned as to whether we really are Americans when we've actually shed blood for America. So, you know, just, just on that point, you know, the coming back to SFO, San Francisco Airport, there's a wonderful exhibition of the Tsugi Airmen mm. um, at the moment. And I walked past it the other day. And it was, I, was, I was going, I was taking a flight. And it's beautiful. These men are in the prime of their life. The, the photographs are just stunning. They're stunning. All in black and white, they're just stunning. These men are in the prime of their lives. 
and they're airmen with all that you know what they wore which looks cool anyway you know these leather jackets with the fur and whatever and the caps and whatever and <laughs> the, the way american um soldiers dressed in the second world war is badass it's badass. they look cool they just look cool and the raw handsome black men right looking at these maps and these flight plans etc etc right and you just go they're fully American, but when they left service, mm. they didn't get the benefits of the GI Bill. They didn't. They didn't get the cheap mortgages. They didn't get the um, free um, admission to higher education, to university, etc., etc. And and that for me is emblematic of what people of color, black folks are saying about the position in America. And I've slightly drifted from one thing to another, but I highly, highly um, relate to that, you know, and that there are, there have been reasons why black folks have been excluded from the full body of American society. And I would say it still goes on today. Just mu it's much more subtle. You can have a black president. Yeah. However, when a black sportsman takes the knee in America, what people see is he hates America. No, he's questioning some bits of America and, and he's making, and he's making a statement. He's not saying he hates America. He's just saying there's some shit we need to change in America. Mm. And arguably, I would say whether or not one agrees with it, that is to me, that is a fundamental right. And so just even appreciating that is American. There you go. There you go. And, 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 I, and I think it comes back to what I said before. When and don't get me wrong, right? There are many people, and I just use, let's use Bernie Sanders as, as an example. There are many folks on the right that would say Bernie Sanders is anti-American. There are, right? He's a communist. No, he's not. He's a democratic socialist, right? Right. He's not on about, he, Bernie Sanders has never said the American government needs to own everyone's property. That's communism. Bernie Sanders never said that, right? But there are many people who said it's, it's anti-American. Ilan Omar, and I'm not down with half of what she says, right? Right? She's more of a threat, right? People say, well, whoa, you know, because, oh, she's a Muslim, you know, she might, she wears a headscarf. Oh, and she's saying this stuff, right? It feels, for some people, magnitudes worse. Though she could be saying exactly the same thing as what Bernie Sanders was saying. But don't get me wrong, there's some people who can say that, that, that guy's anti-American. But a brown woman um, who's not even a Christian saying this stuff, it's worse, you know. And well, I think we need to be honest about how we view people in our gut. All of us take some level of prejudice into every situation. It's how you deal with that, with that prejudice. And if you're honest about it, and if you say, look, I, I feel this, However, I'm going to see the person in front of me as opposed to just reacting to my prejudice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's also just leaning into everyone in their individuality, right? I mean, and, and there's a difference between individualism and individuality and mm -hmm. individual individualism, um, which I think a lot of people have when we're talking about I think that kind of tears apart some of the, some people would say that it is, I would call it, I would go so far as to say is individualism is not what's American. Individuality is. Individualism doesn't look at, you could care less about the, it's all about yourself and not about the community. Whereas when you are dealing with the individual, you can have that respect for someone and for their differences and still be able to work together in a community. 
And so I think, you know, what you were just saying is one of the things that we have done poorly is leaning into people as individuals. I'll go back and I'll tell you, this is one of my problems though, with some of the conversations that we have around race right now is it strips us of that individuality and makes us avatars for groups. And so because of the way we're talking about it, particularly in education, I don't feel that we have become too afraid to lean into people as individuals because we see people only on these outside features because that's how we've been trained to do so that's how, that's how the discussion has gone forward where you know right now then it's just a lot of times white people or black people will be seen as speaking for the entire group and there's that loss of individual of individuality and i i feel like that part of that is one of the reasons that we have a hard time having difficult communications that would actually be of benefit to our country, both as individuals and as a community. What are your thoughts around that? Um, I think you make a really interesting distinction. And I come from a country which is, and then a culture, two cultures, British and Jamaican, which believe much more in community than, um, than the, than the American society does. From a European perspective, um, there is a level of social responsibility and social care that we have that you Americans um, are slightly lacking from a European perspective, say from our perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is nobody bar nobody in the United Kingdom or in Germany or in France or Spain or Portugal or Norway or Italy who is arguing about the benefits of universal health care. Core to it is that um, we should care for everybody if they are sick. And we don't understand how the richest country in the world can have um, so many people that go bankrupt each year because of healthcare. Mm. Right, we just don't, we don't understand it. No, like the rest of the world does not understand this, but it goes to what you were saying about individuals and individualism and it goes to that core. I frequently hear Americans say things like, you know, this, um, if an immigrant is going to turn up in America, and I heard this exact same thing about a month ago, and I had to say stop to this, to this guy. Bear in mind, I'm in America right now. I like America, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not ragging on America, what I'm about to say. But this guy said, you know, if you're an immigrant and you're going to turn up anywhere with just like $50 in your pocket, you best turn up in America because um, you can become a millionaire. And that doesn't happen anywhere else. That's just an utter nonsense statement, right? However, you know, America has more millionaires per head of the population than anywhere else in the, in the industrialized um, liberal world. I think I'm safe by saying that. I'm, I'm sure I'm safe by saying that. But if you look at the outcomes of an immigrant coming with $50 in their pocket, there's going to be other countries which would have much better outcomes, right? But they probably won't have the wild uh, success stories of them all becoming millionaires, right? If you were to turn up in Ireland, and I'll just use Ireland as an example with only $50 in your pocket, you're going to be, uh, your outcomes are probably better, your medium outcomes than if you go to America. But you're probably not going to be a millionaire. The chances are you are not going to be a millionaire if you turn up in America, right? But you might have like a, you know, a 1% chance of doing that. Whereas in Ireland, you might have a 0.5% chance. If mm. you turn up in America broke, 
and and, and many um, Latino um, people can attest to this, right? You're going to end up doing pretty menial jobs for the rest of your life. That's statistically your, your outcome. If you, if you do that in somewhere like Sweden, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here without even looking at the data. Your chances of not doing a menial job for the rest of your life is higher, but you probably won't be a millionaire. And I think it's this, and at the heart of that goes to this story that Americans tell themselves about it's individual agency. You can work hard and sweat and you can prosper. And that is possible. But whereas in Europe, there is more of a sense of, look, this community of people, and it can be a double-edged sword. I'm not saying this is a panacea, but this community of people mm -hmm. um, might need a little bit of extra help because structurally kind of thing, things are against them. And one of the communities of people would be an immigrant that, that would first come, a legal immigrant. I'm not talking about illegal, so let's put that all to one side. I've legally come mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. but I literally don't have a pot to piss in. I'm broke, right? There's a bigger safety net in any European country for somebody like that than there is in the United States. They're, they're, that's just fact, right? Now, so, and but it goes to whether it's healthcare, whether it's the provision of people who are poor, whether it's the provision of people who are recently arrived immigrants. It's a case of, is, are you looking at the individual or are you looking at a commonality of circumstance of a certain people? And, and in Europe, we're more likely to, again, I say it's all perfect, right? but we're more likely to look at a commonality of circumstance and say, we can learn some rules here, right? Because this person has traits with that person, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in America, on the one hand, you say great melting pot or whatever, but the, so the statistics of racial disparities, and I just use that just with one metric, there are many others, male and female, urban and rural. I don't want to just make this all about race, though, you know, there are differences of outcome of which, you know, Americans just seem to go, ah, they could just work harder. You know, uh, I don't know of anybody in Britain that would routinely do, let's say three part-time jobs, but that's not unheard of in the United States. Mm -hmm. The person who generally is doing three part-time jobs doesn't end up living the American dream. They don't. They don't generally. And, and I think Americans need to ask themselves why, because on the one hand, you're saying work harder and you can achieve, but actually there are structural barriers, for let's say a single mother who is maybe working three jobs, can't afford childcare, you know, is spending disproportionate amounts of her income on childcare, which stops her truly, um, economically thriving. There is paid maternity leave everywhere in Europe, nine months paid paternity leave. As somebody who used to be an employer in, in the UK, I remember going, oh, when uh, my, um, when Laura, my first um, employee, employee told me she was going to go off on maternity leave. But you want to know what? The scheme is that the government pays three quarters of her wages, I had to pay a quarter. So the employee still has to pay some. But you know what it actually does? It means that female employees stay in jobs longer than men when they've had kids because they feel some level of, um, they feel like they're being taken care by the employer and they have a much higher level of buy-in. Mm. So mm -hmm. either you want to take a totally capitalistic point of view on it, right? Paid maternity leave means that your employees stay with you longer. It's an investment in them. Forget the societal one, that we need women to produce children. Otherwise, <laughs> who's going to look after us when we're old? You know, it's actually benefits companies. And I used to be, and I was a boss. And I remember when Laura said, oh, you know what? I need, uh, I'm going to go on maternity leave. I was like, oh, my God. Da, da, da. But actually... <laughs> She was with my company for seven years. 
right? You know, in Europe now, not every country in Europe, there's paid paternity leave. It might only be two weeks, but America says, oh, we're so about the family. Mm. Where's the maternity and paternity leave? As statutory rights. Yeah, you know, when I hear it, you brought up something. I'm going to change. I'm, I'm still on this topic, but I'm going to change it a little bit from the, the leave to you brought up something about individual agency. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there is this cowboy culture, if you will, <laughs> that um, some Americans, you know, this, this grit and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of cowboy. That's what I mean by cowboy culture. Um, and, and I think that there's some value to it. The problem is, in my estimation, is it, I don't know if this happens everywhere. I know it happens for sure here. Is everything is either or, black or white. If it's got to be individual agency or nothing, or community or nothing, right? And that's why I was saying there's this difference between individuality and individualism. And I don't feel like we have that conversation enough on where we can merge those two. And it really would be win-win. I mean, it's not a zero-sum game. We play like it's always a zero-sum game. You either have agency or you don't. You either have community or, you know, or, or it's just individualism. I mean, you talk about community and, and you're right. Then all of a sudden it's like it's communist, right? And those two things aren't, they're not mutually exclusive. But we talk about them the way they are. And the way we talk, I think, has designed a system where they are, we where we have not figured out efficiently efficiently that overlap. Well, I think I think you're right, and this is where, and again, just so people just so people know, I'm sat in California. I really like America. I spend much more time <laughs> here than anywhere else in the world. However, sometimes you can't have a nuanced debate with an American. Because they'll say, if you go democratic socialist, what they hear is communist. Mm. If you, you say social democrat, and what they've heard is communist. Mm -hmm. uh, if you say, um, you know, liberal, what they've heard is something else. Now, I'm a social democrat because actually I'm a capitalist. And I think what people don't, what a, many Americans don't realize, it's like Bernie Sanders. He'll say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I believe in social democracy. And what people hear is communism, right? And no, right? He's actually a capitalist. It's just that he believes that um, maybe a higher portion of tax should be taken from the richest and also from corporations to help those at the bottom. Because if we take capitalism, to its nth degree, um, if there is no redistribution of wealth at all, you'll have in have an, an ill-built, inbuilt, sorry, caste system. People at the bottom of society will always go to the worst schools because they live in the worst areas and have the worst health outcomes. It'll go on and on and on. So even the American capitalist system is not pure capitalism. Because why do you fund schools? Why do you take money from, um, from people who are working to fund schools everywhere? Because you see it as an investment in the future that all Americans have at least some basic level of education because then they can, much more, they can function much more efficiently within the work environment, which makes everybody richer. It's just the simplest way of looking at it. You forget altruism that everybody should learn something screw that right this is to help us in the future so we mm. need doctors who can understand what they're reading we need nurses who can understand these instructions from doctors etc etc we need to educate people so america is not truly truly cap capitalist because the educational system fundamentally is socialist libraries are you think about a library it's a socialist thing we the government have some books and some resources and you can come use them. 
you can't get more egalitarian socialists than that. So everything is a mix of mm-hmm. pure capitalism and, let's say, communism on, on, on the one side. And democratic socialism, for me, is kind of in the middle. And, and Americans, as opposed to, you know, somebody from South Africa or Brazil, if something isn't the American way, they just hear communism. But that's the way we do it in America. And it's like, no, no, no. There are other ways of doing things where, you know, you know, where capitalism is still there. You can still get rich. You can be, you can be born into money. Good luck to you. You can um, invent something and become rich. Good luck to you. You can set up a company and with a bit of skill and with a bit of luck, you can become a billionaire. That happens in Sweden. It happens in Germany and whatever. But you know what? They don't have the homeless problem that you have here in the United States. They don't have the negative health as, uh, outcomes that you have in the United States. The school system in Finland is the best in, in the, in the industrialized world. Right. And Nokia is a sweet, is a, is a Finnish company, right? It's not communist. Finland is not communist. It's, it's more democratically socialist in that, um, people at the core of the state, there is more of a philosophy of you might fall on hard times, right? If you fall on hard times, we're going to help you for a time, right? Um, I was, Finland is a really interesting country in that not only is their educational system seen as the best in the world, their society is seen as the happiest and it's the most open. And these are the various NGOs that do these lists of the most open, the most happiest, blah, blah, blah. Finland was the first country in the world that says the internet is a right access to the internet is a right it's not it's not um you know it's a utility in effect and that to have a home is a right now you could take say well well look how far north as, uh, finland is if you don't have a home you're going to die if you're exposed to the elements but but still it's enshrined that it's your right to have a home so you know even if it's just a small little uh you know you've got somewhere to live I, I love California, but it's one of the crying shames of this great state. The level of homelessness here, there's 10,000 homeless people in San Francisco. That should be something which I, every Californian should hang their head in shame, considering how liberal this place is as well and how progressive. 10,000, you go to the Tenderloin and it's, it's like a Mad Max movie. Yeah, 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 I've, I mean, my family's in California too, so I've seen it as well. I think, I think that what I would say, and again, I think that it is a tragedy of uh, this current moment where we are talking past each other instead of working with each other. Everything's moved to the extremes just to be, again, it's a zero sum, zero sum game. I'm right. You're wrong. Here's like talk to address homelessness specifically. Here's though, I feel like there is a missing community aspect, but also this is where I would say, where I'm thinking you've got to have both agency and community, because if you provide these resources, then there has to be this expectation that you will take responsibility to use those resources in a way to to lift up and Mm. I don't know that and maybe there should be even more resources to help make sure that that's the direction that you are going but I feel that often we don't without that ingredient of agency and building that into our programs it exacerbates issues like homelessness and other really big issues where there is this assumption that the state is the reason or there's something external to me that is the reason that I'm in this situation and I can never get out without some help from other people. That might be true. 
that help might be a, a necessary ingredient, but I think there needs to be agency within that. I, I'm not well. saying. Uh, I remember when I when I first came to California and I saw the homeless problem. Um, good for I just said just build build houses, and good friend of mine. She is a hardcore Democrat, hardcore progressive, said Royfield. This is a multifactorial problem. It's not mm. just building houses, right? Mm. Where are you going to build the houses? Right. Where are you going to find the money to build the houses? Where are you going to build the houses? You know, who lives next to these people when you built the houses? And then when you've then built them the houses, where are their jobs, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. It's multifactorial. I'm not saying that it's an easy problem to to fix but what we are building here in in california is a caste system right it's starting to become a caste system you because without a fixed abode can you really have a bank account if you have children right their outcomes statistically speaking and this is where we we need to take away the individualism and actually just look at the data um their their outcomes for the rest of their life are so much worse and they didn't ask to be born into this situation right so we're going to perpetuate economic divides which will then echo throughout generations and there are 10 thousand homeless people in san francisco right you know they're more likely to be drug addicts alcoholics even if they don't even start off that way and i appreciate that for a lot of them that's the reason why they're falling into this okay but when i look at the fact that during covid the height of the covid pandemic um san francisco that said this is a multifactorial problem which we can't solve managed to home house all 10,000 homeless people within a month i say to myself we just need a political will we need the political will in the united kingdom and i don't know how many people are homeless in the uk but it's nothing like uh, what it is in the united states um overnight within a week the government homed housed every homeless person within within the uk because there's a selfish reason for doing it we didn't know how contagious the virus was going to be, and we didn't want them to be vectors of the virus to go and kill the rest of us. So all of a sudden, we found the political will to do something which we should have done, been doing anyway. You know, so it's not a simple problem to fix no. long term. But you know what? I'm sat in the richest country in the world. It tells itself it's the leader of the free world all the time. You know, the American dream is a beacon for many people throughout the world you know some of us lefties don't want to admit that but it absolutely is right people all around the world do want to come to the united states um and fundamental and, and basically um immigrants working immigrants um have good good outcomes when they come to the united states they do just don't come here broke though that that's the thing right um but you know America has so many things to be proud of and to lord and um but you know give give these people a chance to be to be productive it, it, it is my thing it's the right human thing to do yeah and no matter which side of the political divide you fall on neither has really been able to solve that one have they and no. it's going to take the political will but it's going to take that that cooperation that is entirely lacking right now and and i'll tell you one thing considering that you know i, I you know i've said a couple of times i am i am a lefty i'm i'm progressive I'm, I'm on the left there's a massive liberal hypocrisy that goes on in california you know this is one of what one of the bluest states um and you know, my liberal friends will go, oh, my goodness, it's terrible, the homeless problem. But they don't really see it. It's, mm. it's us foreigners that really see it. Like, oh, my God, there are tent cities underneath freeways. Not one tent, cities of tents. Right? It almost looks like Rio in, in places. Mm. 
And the liberal hypocrisy is this, is that those liberals who are multi, who are sat in these houses that are worth a lot, do not want to forgo maybe 2% of the annual appreciation on their property for the sake of building affordable housing. They don't want the affordable housing anywhere near them. And these are people who politically and emotionally want to help, you know, the, the crisis, but put them somewhere else. Just put them somewhere else. That's a liberal hypocrisy. It's the NIMBY, not in my backyard. Absolutely, got, absolutely. We see it here in Austin all the time, too. It's, it's even ironic around, you know, election season, you know, the various signs. I don't even realize if they know the hypocrisy in their own yards, where it's like one is like would not allow for some responses to homelessness or, or building affordable property, you know, near this neighborhood. Whereas other ones are for like spending a gazillion dollars to, to, you know, to address social issues. And it's kind of like, I was like, I, sometimes I take pictures of like the competing yard signs. I'm like, <laughs> oh man. But anyways, well, well, Royfield, it has been fascinating to pick your brain and to get your perspective. Um, we think differently on some things, but you've given me so like I've so much to chew on and so much to that helps me work through my own thoughts on how we get things done. I hope I will. If there were more conversations like this, <laughs> maybe. But, but, but you know what, though, what, what I honestly believe is that um, there are structural reasons why um, America is having the level of polarization that it is. You know, there's that broadcast bill that Reagan brought up in like, what, like 1980, one of the last things he did, 1988, uh, which says that there doesn't have to be balance within media. Right. Then we yeah. have the internet, then we have social media, and increasingly we're just talking to ourselves. We're talking to people who just believe what we believe. Yep. Um, right. um, so it's not all the internet. This was kind of slightly happening before, etc. And here's another thing as well. Ronald Reagan, when and when he was re-elected, won every state within the United States. Every state. Right? That can't happen now. It's a landslide uh, when, you know, it's it's kind of half the states because those half states are, 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 are you know, are, popular, right. uh, are, are quite populous. So there are structural reasons apart from just the internet and social media, why America is at this impasse. 40 years ago, Americans were much more homogeneous in terms of their political views. Reagan could win every state. You know, nobody can win every state right now. But we met on Clubhouse, and I'm not saying that Clubhouse is the answer to, to all the ills in, in society, but it isn't Twitter. Whereas Twitter is, I think Twitter is people shouting all the time. You've got a hundred and what, 48 characters and you need to say something very clever and very quick right now, like this, all right? You can't have a conversation. You can't. And on a platform like Clubhouse or through podcasts, actually you can have conversations where nuance, you can say, I believe this. However, there is this as well. And by the way, there is this. You can't do that in a tweet. You know, you can't do that on in the average Facebook post. So, and, and the other thing I'll say is that the more time I spend here, the more I realize most Americans are actually kind of somewhat in the middle. It's just that they take a certain prejudice into um, an argument. So if you say, um, you say, you know, should all America, you know, do you believe in, this could be the, not necessarily the right example, I'm not phrasing it in the best way, but you say, wouldn't it be great if all America, if, if America had free healthcare? I think most Americans would actually say yes. But if you call it, you know, um, an extension of Obamacare, 
half Americans are going to be like, oh, no, you know, right. type of yeah. thing. Right. There's a way of just couching things. And, yeah. and, it, and it's because we've been so polarised by the lens that we view these issues in that um, if you're just really careful with the language that you use, you'll get unanimity. But, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Right then, but then you just paint it a slight, slight different way. Then all of a sudden, people hear the nuance. So, oh no, that sounds very right wing, or that sounds very, very, very left wing. You know, so I don't like that. That's very Republican. That's very Democrat. If we're careful around the language, around the nuance, and actually engage with people, you know what? This country ain't got no problems. They ain't yeah. got no problems. You know, just it's the, the idiots on the fringes just need to just cut that out. <laughs> yeah, well, they're the, with the loudest voices, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the majority of people are what the Hidden Tribes report called the exhausted middle, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Roy, I will let you get on with your... Day, lovely day in California. Thank you. All right. Talk to you All later. Right, Jen, take care. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Right bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers. Cheers.